Hi, this is John Brandt, author of Nincompoopery. That's right, Nincompoopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and How to Fix It. This is my quest for the best with the esteemed Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is John Brandt. John R. Brandt is the CEO and founder of the MPI Group and has devoted more than two decades to studying leadership in effective, purpose-driven organizations. He's the former publisher and editor-in-chief of Industry Week magazine and is a graduate of Case Western University. John is here to talk about his book, Nincompoopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and How to Fix It. He lives and works in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, John. Bill, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with me. So tell me, John, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Both of my parents, for sure. My mother certainly encouraged me to be a writer and told me that she thought I would make it big once I finally decided to focus on humor. I had several bosses in my 20s that didn't agree, but you know, whatever. And my father, who always, I will never, ever forget this. At one point, I was, I don't know, you know, you're a teenager, you're worried about something, about what's going to happen, and you know, can I make it? Maybe it, was, maybe it was about writing, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. And he looked at me, and he channeled, I found out later he was channeling Benjamin Franklin, but he looked at me, or I'm sorry, Daniel Webster, he looked at me, and he goes, you know, there's always room at the top. I was like, wow, I'd never thought of that before. So, so both of them, and I've just had so many other mentors over the years, people who encouraged me at one point or another where you didn't quite know what was going to happen next, and suddenly this person appears in your life. It's awesome. As I think you know. I do. And I really like that phrase, that maxim, there's always room at the top. It was, and, it's, and I had, it took me 20 or 30 years. So I thought he just made it up. And I was like, where did he get that? But it turns out he was such a reader. Another thing I learned, he was a hit reader, of, reader of history. That is a quote from Daniel Webster, who, when he was just turning into becoming a lawyer, somebody said, you know, that's a pretty crowded profession. And Daniel Webster said, there is always room at the top. And can you remember a time early in your life when you referred to that or it helped you through a dark moment, which I imagine as a writer is a pretty tough way to make a go of things? It happened, I mean, multiple times, not just in writing, but in other areas where, you know, I mean, my father would also say to me, you sure have champagne tastes on a beer budget. So I got, I got both sides of that equation. But there were multiple times where, you know, I had gone into, um, gone into business, I'd been in sales, I'd, I was in consulting for a while. And just because I loved writing so much, I started doing freelance writing. I was doing freelance business writing for several magazines. And I ended up meeting with somebody who became a mentor of mine, uh, an editor, to talk with just about another freelance piece. And he looked at all the stuff, he goes, you know, you really should be doing this full time. And I looked at him and go, well, no, I'm a consultant. I do this, I do that, blah, blah, blah. And then I went out with my wife at the time and told her the story. And she looked at me and she said, are you out of your mind? You've been happier the last year than you have been for the last 10. So I took a chance, cut my income in half, went and became an editor at a small magazine. And honestly, it's made all the difference. And can you remember how exciting it was, as well as scary, to take that job and looking around saying, you know, this is where I belong, or whatever it was you said to yourself at the time. 
I can because I had been a consultant. I was working then for one of my clients. I had a big title. I had a big office. I was doing stuff. I was a management consultant, the director of management development for a hospital system. Mm. And all of a sudden, I went from having my own office and tons of freedom to I was sitting at a cubicle at the end of a hallway next to somebody else making half the income. And on the one hand, I love the work and it was very exciting. On the other hand, it's like, what have I done? Really? Where, where, where does this go? And I literally had no clue, but that was what was really important about that moment in my life was to make that change. Not only did I have to be pushed a little bit by somebody else and, and certainly mentored, you have to make a decision. I had to make a decision that I just decided I really was never, ever again going to do work that I didn't want to and that is such an incredible, liberating feeling. And I know we have lots of people who run small businesses on this podcast or entrepreneurs. When you make that decision, it, I mean, you are opening up a world of terror in many ways, but you are also opening up a world of possibility. The decision I had to make at the time was, did I want to do this? And, and I finally, I gave myself a gift. And the gift was I would never again do work that I didn't want to do. I would never again spend time just wasting time for a paycheck. I would always try I would always try to do work I loved and I've and that made the hugest difference in my life. And it's a gift you can only give yourself because everybody else will tell you you should do this or do that. So true. And I think that a lot of people can resonate with the change that happens in your life when you establish what I call a standard and saying, you know what, there are a lot of ways to make money. And if need be, I could do that. But I'm choosing to have a standard that's higher for my life, where I'm going to look to give what I can contribute at this level. And for you, that was writing and editing. It was writing and editing. And the perverse thing about it I've seen in my, not just in myself, but in other people, once you give yourself that freedom, once you turn yourself over to doing things only you love, you of course work harder, you of course do better. And if, if financial success is important to you, that will come too. That's not the most important thing. Everything gets better once you do that. But so many people feel like they have to do this because this is the path that they've been shown or that other people have followed. Mm. Or they, and, and we also see, you know, this is something I, I've advised my kids about. We live in a world where you're basically advised you should go get an education for a job, you should do that job or whatever, and you have to do that thing for your entire life. And it's just not true. You can do multiple things, and you should do the thing that's going to make you happy when you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, whatever. It reminds me of an expression or a sentence that I've read from John Hyland's science fiction. I think it was from The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, mm. where he said, a man's mind once stretched never returns to its original dimensions. And it's that same experience of saying, once you give yourself permission to do that, all the energy that goes into that and how you do a better job and everything really comes into sharper focus is something you experience only when you give yourself that gift that you described. Well, exactly. And all that energy goes into that. And you're also not spending all that energy worrying about what other people yeah. think or why they're disappointed in you and which why they would be disappointed in you. Who knows? But we all, we've all been around people like that. And you get to a point where it's not just who knows what they're thinking, but you get to a point where you say, well, who cares? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so John, what is your definition of nincompoopery? <laughs> well, nincompoopery is when you... And I want to stress that it's, we all experience this every day as it, whether we're business customers or consumers, but we also, terribly enough, deliver this to other people or our own businesses. What it is, it's when you expect, you go to a company, you expect that there's, they're offering a product or a service, you expect it's going to work, or if it's not going to work, they're going to fix it, and it just doesn't. Things go wrong 
And even though everybody knows what's wrong and every, even the employees there might go, oh yeah, that's just the way it is. Nobody can seem to fix it. Example of this would be, you know, you take your car to get it fixed, all right? You, whether you go to your repair shop, you go to a dealer, you take your car in and then you're driving home. You're like, oh my gosh, they didn't fix this. So you have this horrible choice at that point. You're going to drive a car that's unsafe or you're going to drive back, sit there, wait all over again for your car to be fixed. In the meanwhile, you're going to be irritated. The dealership's going to lose money because they're doing the repair again. The mechanic's boss is going to tell him or her that they're a nincompoop. That mechanic may or may not believe that he or she is a nincompoop. And it's just a terrible thing where it doesn't have to be that way. Because it, so what happens then is that's nincompoopery, that process. But what we find over and over again is that, you know, you maybe say to yourself, oh, why do they hire such nincompoops? Well, actually, they're probably not hiring nincompoops. What happens in all those situations is it is not the person itself. It is not the so-called nincompoop. It's the nincompoopery. It's never the nincompoops. It's always the nincompoopery because there's a larger process that has not been examined by managers there. I mean, what if they did training for people instead of just training them on how to fix cars? What if they trained them on what the margins are in the business and how they make money? What if they trained them on simple improvement methodologies? You know, I mean, you could be as fancy as lean or you could just use a checklist. Mm. In that case, I would have gotten my car. It would have been fixed right the first time. The dealership's margins would have been appropriate. Everybody would have been happy. And, there's, and nobody would think somebody's a nincompoop. That's what happens. And we see this over and over again in all the, you know, I mean, everybody I talk to, when I mention the word nincompoopery and say what it is, they go, oh my gosh, let me tell you the story that happened to me last week. And the thing that's really frustrating is that when you find this in a company, then it happens to companies large, happens to small companies, it's almost never that it was like, oh my gosh, this was an unsolvable problem. It's usually a pretty simple problem. Everybody knows it's there, but nobody seems to feel like it's their job to fix it. And that's what we're talking about. I love the distinction you make between nincompoops and nincompoopery because the system is as much responsible for allowing it to continue as it is for the people who feel either disempowered or unable to make a decision or take action. My story that came to mind as you were describing the car dealership was I had brought my car in to get detailed at a dealership. And as they roll it out, it had bird poop on the trunk. <laughs> And of course it did. And I know that it did. It happened after they had cleaned the car and it was sitting out in the lot. And I also know that in order to get into the car, you had to have seen that. So as he hands me the key, it was the attendant who handed me the key. I said, I just shook my head. <laughs> he says, what? And I just pointed and he says, I, I didn't do that. And I said, I would believe that. I really do believe that. <laughs> Clearly, because you don't look like a pigeon to me. Exactly. I, I, under, I understand that that was not you. And yet, here is the car. And it was just, and we got that all resolved, but it was just his sense of not being empowered to grab a hose or drive it by where there was a hose rather than follow something so strictly and use poor judgment. So it's, it's an example I share with you. And, and you know, it happens, and it happens for a lot of reasons, but mainly it happens when people stop paying attention you know, they start thinking about their job as, as doing a task instead of we're trying to create value for customers and for ourselves, right? They stop thinking about what the end game is and they think, oh, this, oh, this is my job. I do these tasks. I hand it off to somebody else. Or the manager goes, okay, I, I, we checked all these boxes, da, da, da. Instead of thinking, what is the actual effect on what we're trying to do here? They become sort of task or process focused instead of being end result focused. We're human beings. It is in our nature to start to take it easy or to, to stop 
paying attention, et cetera, because we get distracted and we've got other things going on. But what really goes bad is in some organizations, large and small, is when people stop listening. And that can be either just because they feel so busy or overwhelmed in their own jobs, or it can be sort of an active, inadvertent active strategy by management because they don't want to hear any complaints, whether they're from customers or employees, or they just stop, they go to what I call customer-free zones, that's the boardroom, it's any place that doesn't touch customers, and they stop thinking about what customers actually need, and they stop actually going to where the work is done for customers, or actually going out and being with customers. And when that starts to happen, you start to have this thing happen sometimes where you'll hear, and I mean, how many times have each of us heard somebody say, this would be a great business if it weren't for the customers. My job would be awesome if it weren't for the customers because they're cranky and they're stupid. Well, they're, they're not stupid. They're cranky because you're not doing their job. And when we start ignoring customer complaints, we are ignoring one of the most valuable things that we can have. If a customer complains to you, that is a cry for help. That is them saying what you do and you are so important to me that I am trying to tell you how to make it better. That is a tremendous gift and we ignore that at our peril. I hope all the business owners and leaders out there listening have heard that and really take that to heart. If a customer complains, it is a cry for help. And make sure that everyone in your organization understands how to respond to these cries for help, just as John pointed out. Now, John, you talk about how no one really sets out to hire a nincompoop. And I myself, <laughs> I've never once seen that word in a job listing <laughs> under requirements or experience. Idiot, idiots preferred. <laughs> Yet, because it's so prevalent, I think that you did a really important service in helping us understand that when we disengage to listening to customer and listening not just for what we did right, but listening for complaints and how to deal with it, that makes a difference. Can you tell me about an example of a company or leaders at a company that recognized this and said, that's it, we're drawing a line here and we're going to do something about this so that you could solve the solvable problems? Well, in, in terms of talent specifically, we, I mean, we don't want to hire nincompoops. One of the things to, to do this the right way, to make sure that you are not going to create this nincompoopery, there's a, several things that you need to do. One of the most important is to get the right people on your team. And most of us do a terrible job of hiring. And the reason we do that is because we've been led to believe that when you hire, you know, it's an, an attraction process. We look at resumes. We look for technical skills. And, and I want to stress, it is really, really important that you have somebody in a job who can do a technical skill. I mean, you know, if you're Southwest Airlines and you're going to try to have airplanes and you're hiring a jet mechanic, that person really does need to help know how to fix it, a plane. What's interesting, though, is when you look at companies doing great things, large and small, they look beyond the resume. They look beyond the technical skills because if you're thinking about what you're trying to do for that customer, it's not just the technical part. It's that do they care about that customer? You look at Southwest Airlines. They've made money, I don't know, something like 42 years in a row right now. They look beyond the resume and they're looking for people. They're hiring for smarts. They're hiring for diligence and they're hiring for caring. Because what they want to know is that that person is going to care about what matters to the customer and what they can do for them. You see that not just with small companies, with large companies, I'm sorry, with small companies too. Small companies too. There's a great little uh, chain of uh, burger places called Pal Sudden Service. And at Pal Sudden Service, you, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. You drive up to one side of the building, 
you put in your order and it takes on something insane like 12, 18 seconds. Then you drive around the other part of the building and you go to a different window, you get your burger and you get that burger in like something crazy like 18 seconds too. They have fewer errors than any other fast food chain in America by an order of magnitude. They do things insanely fast. Customers love them and employees don't leave. Well, what do they do? Well, they have, instead of, you know, Southwest Airlines, very large, they've got a whole series of corporate systems they use. Pal Sudden Service came up with their own sort of, you know, I think, believe it's a 60-question survey asking people simple questions like, do you think the best way to get somebody's attention is to yell at them or something like that? And, you know, you answer yes or no. But more important than that is that they train, when you join this place, they train you obsessively. And you have to be trained on every and certified on every single function of your job. And then every store on every shift employees are randomly selected to take a quiz on one of the things they're certified for. And if they don't pass that, they have to go back to training. And what I love about this is it's not punitive. It's just like, let's get you back into training because the CEO there said that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, people are, you know, are no different than machines in that they go out of calibration. And what we have to do is we have to coach, we have to teach, we have to bring them back. If you want to do this, you have to hire incredibly well. But the thing the, what many of us forget is that we also then have to train. And train not just on technical skills, but on collaboration, on communication. We see an increasing focus at small companies, large companies, on if you're going to ask employees to make decisions that are going to affect your margins, they better understand how you make money. And one of the things that we find over and over again is that we don't do a very good job in this country of teaching people about economics. And most companies have people who work for them who don't know the difference, you know, don't know how to read an income statement, may not know difference between a profit and a loss. It's not because they're dumb. It's because nobody taught them. So it is incumbent on us if we're putting people close to, decision, close to the customer and making decisions that affect how much we make, they make, that we train them and that we also share the rewards of success with them. Well, John, that's a lot to think about. And Pals certainly has taken that to heart. Uh, they're a company that's got, I think, 1,100 people. And what do they have? Close to 100 different locations? About 27. Okay. So two dozen, 27 different locations. And they're able to do this in a small business distributed fashion where they've shared this standard with everyone. And the training matters. Everybody gets the difference that it makes. And then they also work with them on those competencies. Absolutely. So in your book, you, you talk about the three different types of nincompoops who prevent change. <laughs> what do you advise listeners to steer clear of only two of them? <laughs> Whatever. And, you know, I had a little fun with this, but it's true. Anybody who's ever tried to lead change in any kind of an organization knows that not everybody is up for change. I mean, my, my experience is that everybody loves change, but generally they want it to not, for nothing to be different and they shouldn't have to work very hard at it. So if you're going to lead change, you're really going to find out that you've got three groups of people. And first group I call woe is all of us. And what that means is you're going to say, oh, I think we got to change. And they're going to be like, oh, nothing's going to ever change. You know, everybody we know is denser than a neutron star. You're wasting your time. We can't do this. You want to avoid those people. There's nothing you can do to convince them they need to change. Another group, and I call them the, the woe is you. And woe is you means these are the people when you say, oh, we got to change, we got to do something different here. These are the people who are going to say, oh, really? But you don't know enough. You haven't been here long enough. You don't know this industry. You're not old enough. You're not smart enough. You're not whatever you are. And those are the people where some of them may eventually help because there's two groups of those, right? 
the woe is you, some of them are just mean. They're doing it to be mean. And they're probably doing it because they feel so bad about themselves that they don't, you know, that the idea that you could possibly change, you could possibly think that things could be different, sort of imperils their own sense of victimhood. And so they don't want to do it. They've weaponized their own disgust with themselves and are, they're putting it outward. That's just a very small group of those people. The other woe is yours are the ones who are unintentional. And they mainly, they're just like, they're overwhelmed. They don't know how this might work. Da, da, da. They're like, well, could be a good idea. Maybe we should have a committee. Maybe we should go to another meeting. They're not going to help you. They will help you later. They're not going to help you now. The group that you want to focus on are the ones where you talk about a change. They are the woe is change people. And what that means is like, well, that could be great. I mean, that would be good. But how would we ever do that? Who could lead such a change? And if you can show those people by focusing on what's really important, and what I, when I look at uh, successful change initiatives, what I see is it really comes down to basic human motivation. And what are we worried about? You can look at all these different rubrics. We're really worried about meaning, relationships, and security. And whether it's Maslow's hierarchy or et cetera, when you think about it, you know, in general, we want to be secure economically. We don't, we want to be physically safe. That's one of the things. So that's why change is so threatening to people. Cause what does that mean? It's fairly well documented at this point too, though, that when you run into change, when you run into resistance to a change in an organization, it is generally not the technical change. You know, they don't care whether you're changing the system or your process. It is a change in relation. Yes. What does this mean to me as a person? What does this mean to how I feel about me or how I feel about myself? And then the final issue is meaning. Because once you feel relatively secure in general, whether at work or in life, whether they, once we've talked about, well, this is how your relationships, this is how it might, you're still going to be respected, etc. Most everybody personally and at work comes to a, a sort of a fundamental question about meaning what what is the meaning of my life and for most people overall that's going to be some combination of faith and family and principles community but all of us spend so much time at work and i i mean if you do the math if you start in your early 20s and you work into your 60s or longer you're going to probably work 90,000 hours in your life most of us say 90,000 hours man i would like to have that be just more than a paycheck did i do something and a lot of people don't get that for a variety of reasons, but most of us would like that. So what that means is that if you're going to lead change, you have to manage those three things. You have to manage them in reverse order because usually when you're making a change, it's because something's wrong or maybe something's really, really wrong. Like the company's going to go bankrupt or da, da, da. So you really can't guarantee security. So you start out with meaning. You say, look, this, we're trying to help these, this group of customers. We are trying to achieve this objective. We want to make the world better in this way. And this is what the change we need to make so we can do that. And you work backward to relationships. So what does this mean to you? Well, this means that because this is important to you, because da, 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 explain how that's going to change relationships eternally, and then go to security. And if you can all say, look, and we've got enough cash that we're going to do this, but sometimes you can't. And what you have to do in that situation is speak very candidly about, you know, we have to do this or the company's going to die, or we have to do this or we're going to miss out on the market, or we have to do this and we're not going to be able to achieve this objective. We don't know exactly what it's going to mean for jobs but this is what we think the path will look like in as much realistic, honest detail as you can. Because you have to remember, when you're leading a change initiative, the one thing people will forgive you for not knowing exactly what's gonna happen, they will never forgive you for lying to them. 
So true. And I think that's where good leaders really show their mettle is they are able to make those hard decisions and say with courage and clarity to people, we have to make this choice because we don't have unlimited time or unlimited funding. We have to make these hard choices. And here's what it's come down to. What do you think is best? And to get that input in order to get all of the best ideas of the people who are involved in the process. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, when we see, you know, we've done research across 50, well over 50,000 businesses, business units, et cetera. It's, it's probably even higher than that at this point. When we go back and run correlations on data, say like, what are the two things that, you know, what are the things, because people will say, well, what are the things that matter most? And it, number one, across all industries that we've looked at, and we've looked at heavy manufacturing, we've looked at beauty salons, pest control, healthcare, you name the niche industry, we've probably done some work there at, at the MPI group. The number one thing that we see correlate with long-term success is number of hours of training per employee per year. And just to, to show for the to show for the number, you got to do at least 40. If you want to be world-class, you got to do a minimum of 40 hours of training per employee per year. Award-winning great companies often do 60, 100, whatever. That's number one. Number two is what percentage of your employees are in self-directed or empowered work teams. Bill, what you were just talking about is, are you getting ideas from your team? Because that is the second most important thing is that, are you putting decision-making close to the, where the work is done? Are you putting it close to customers? And in fact, when we look around the world, at least in developed economies, we don't see a model, an organizational model, you know, public, private, small, large, that works well, that, doesn't, that isn't really decentralized and flattened with that decision-making close to the customer. And what that means then is you've got to have people who are really well-trained, who understand your margins, and that you are listening to. Because if they're close to the customer, they're coming back and they're trying to tell you, customers really don't like this, and this is why. And it is your job to make sure that the people who work with you for you have the resources and the room to make those changes to make everybody happy. So that really brings up a very important point that you illustrate so nicely in Nincompoopery, which is it's so much about the process. And let me read one of the chapters that's called Stop Shooting Yourself in the Foot. <laughs> the, the chapter on Stop Shooting Yourself in the Foot is just priceless. I'm going to read the first two sentences and then let you elaborate. So All right, it starts great. with, but wait, it gets worse. Flimsy data and haphazard analysis of processes not only damage short-term profitability, but long-term survivability because executives with mistaken assumptions about how much value is being created by a given process usually make even bigger mistakes about investing for the future. John, what conversation, situation, or incident was the genesis for that observation? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, <laughs> Bill, I wish there was only one, right? Because then that would be, that would be one unfortunate somewhere. And we would say like, oh, you know, here, here lies poor, this poor company, da, da, da. There were so many. I would say that one of the great, I, I met a CEO one time, uh, I can't use the name, CEO of a manuf smaller manufacturing company. And was talking about the fact that he had finally realized by doing his metrics, he had finally you know, taken a look at the, the hard metrics that he had one customer. This customer was what we would you know, politely call a price-obsessed whale. Massive company, you know, much larger, I believe, than, than, than this manufacturing company, who demanded, who had cut prices and been such a tough negotiator 
that what the CEO, when he finally did the metrics, realized was that although this company was providing 5% of his overall profits, was actually, when you did all the math, was consuming 35% of his factory's sort of effort. Wow. And that is a really awful metric, right? You know, that's, and so it took a lot of guts, but that once doing these metrics, this CEO took this customer out, sat him down to a very nice lunch, and said, look, I can't afford to keep working with you. Here are the names of several of my competitors, three of my competitors. And you might imagine the customer was quite taken aback because really we're such and such. Wow, how could you possibly do this? But went off, began working with one of the three competitors. Now, I want to stress, you probably got to be a CEO to do that, but it's the power of that because what that CEO realized is that he had a structural mm -hmm. issue that if he didn't fix that, the company could not grow and actually was at risk. The great end of that story is that six months later, that customer came back renegotiated to an appropriate price, matching effort to matching percentage profit, and they ended up having a very happy relationship going forward. What do you attribute the difference to? What did the customer understand that made it different the second time around? So this was a company that was really devoted to good customer service, quality, et cetera. I believe that what happened was that customer went out and was able to get the same price from a competitor, but got service and quality appropriate to the price. And one of the things that we in small businesses often don't do is take enough credit for the level of care and service and quality and personal attention. And we are often afraid to charge for it. You know, we can, we can in small businesses, and I've, you know, run, I've run a small business too, we can often be the worst people in terms of pricing ourselves. Yeah. Cause like, oh, well, never pay that. Well, <laughs> yes, they will. If you can demonstrate to them what the value is. And, and how many of our friends, customers, clients, um, all who we recognize <laughs> who negotiate themselves out of the deal before they even give it to the customer and they'll, they'll start lowering their own prices because they go through some version of that in their head. They go through some version of, well, we can't possibly compete with those people. Well, actually, yes, you can. There's a, there's a reason they're looking beyond that. That's hilarious. So, John, let me ask you, are you ready for my quest for the best lightning round? I am more than ready for this. Bring, bring on the lightning. Here we go. So earlier I asked you about a person who influenced or inspired you. Now, what's a book or idea that changed the course of your life? Book is uh, called The Elephant and the Flea. It's by Charles Handy. I believe it was written in the late 80s, early 90s. He's a business writer, philosopher, had a successful business career, then became a teacher. He anticipated much of what our current economy looks like, and he talked about the idea that eventually people would not have jobs, they would have portfolio careers. And he also talked quite a bit about how to do that and how you needed to think about the value you provide, both personally and in business. And think about the last six months of your life. Oh, my gosh. What's the easiest or least expensive change you've made that's brought about the greatest personal or professional satisfaction? There are several. I would say the easiest, dumbest, best is I began using bullet journaling. Ah. And if you're not familiar with bullet journaling, which you, 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 I'm sure you are, but we may have listeners who are not, it is a way to bring everything in your personal life and your business life into one analog paper notebook so that nothing ever gets forgotten. 
or at least not forgotten for very long. So I'll be sure in the show notes that we point to the interview we did with Ryder Carroll earlier back. <laughs> Absolutely do. I'm a huge believer in it. And what's the most important habit or routine or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Hmm. This, this is the less is more question. <laughs> I tend to have a habit of making sure I want to consume all the information I can about a topic. And so I tend to will hold on to articles or links or magazines. And, you know, I'm not, we're not at hoarding levels like this is for a month or two, but sometimes we'll sit them and I've just realized I can always find it later. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is that, you know, I mentioned it, I think at the top of our interview, how important it was when I made a decision many years ago that I would never do work. I didn't want to do that. I didn't like again. I think the other part of that is that, that, you know, when you make a decision like that, it's not a one and done thing. You keep having to shed things and it might be a year later. It might be 10 years, 20 years later. We can still, we still all have all these messages we get from the culture and from business culture in particular about how we need to work. We need to show up at this time of day. We need to do this. You have to structure. If you're an executive, oh my gosh, you got to structure a day like this. I've become much more free in how I schedule my time during the day in terms of, you know, I need to block out X, Y and, and making sure I'm realistic about, and that's partly due to, to a lot of reading I've done about switching costs. Mm -hmm which is we all know that uh, these days that you know, the biggest lie we were ever told is that we can multitask. You know, the problem is, yes, we can multitask, but every time you switch, if you do that multiple times, you're losing 25 to 40% of your productivity. You are much better off having long stretches of time where you're doing a similar activity. As a writer, as a researcher, you know, as a coach for people, it's really important to do that and not thinking you're getting so much in the day. I've become much freer in my own schedule over the last year. Jen, let's pop back up for nincompoopery and small business leaders right now who are asking themselves, what steps can I take right now to reduce or avoid nincompoopery in my company? What would be two or three pieces of advice you give them that can be practically implemented in order to see some forward momentum? The first and foremost thing is for those owners, for those managers to, one, themselves find four customers, five customers, 10 customers, and you need to go out and meet with them. And this is not taking them to the game. This is not, let's, hey, let's meet for a drink. It's not lunch. You got to go to where their business is and you got to work alongside them for a day. Or if you're selling consumer stuff, you got to go into their home and say, look, can we just be with you while you're, you know, over the course of a day? And that's the first step because the biggest, most important thing you can do to do this is to start listening to customers. And that means, and if you call somebody up and say, hey, you know, what's our net promoter score? Hey, how's your customer satisfaction? Those are useful. It's not the same as going out and living with somebody. When we see companies doing great things over and over again, and it's not just leaders, companies doing great things in general have a program where every single employee over the course of a year has to go at least meet with one customer in this way. Go work alongside them. Go be side by side in their home. Because what happens when you do that is that you get unfiltered, feedback and you also get to observe and watch make maybe you've making this in a way where you're making them do extra work to buy from you or you're making them do extra work to use your product well why would you do that why would you ever make it harder for somebody to give you money if you're running a business and so that i think first and foremost that would be the first thing the second thing would be to take a look at you know how are you training how are you 
how are you bringing, what percentage of your day are you working on coaching and listening with your team? Because it is so easy to get so busy with the tasks because, you know, the, the dirty little secret is that we're all in this sea of information right now where, I mean, we're getting hundreds of emails a day. We're getting texts. We've got, it is so easy to become overwhelmed that you can walk away from that. You can forget and sort of ignore the stuff that actually matters, which is people you're working with trying to serve. How much time you're spending with them versus like, oh my gosh, I had a clean inbox. How great is that? It's the emphasis on the wrong things that matter. Right. I mean, email is like, it is a way to make yourself feel like you're working and it's, but it's like the worst video game ever because, because it just keeps popping up. You got to keep whacking them again. Well, John, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best today. I just want to thank you so much. You've shared with us the idea that your father shared with you, but there's always room at the top and you know how that makes a difference in order to set yourself apart and have those high standards for your life. You talked about how nincompoopery is something we all experience. And once you break it down into thinking about how it's something we expect it to work and or get fixed, it's something that's not necessarily about the person, but it's the larger process. It's the system. It's the culture that supports these short-sighted gains and not training people to think and take empowered action. It's also about, you know, nincompoopery is about a lot of people stop listening. And that's so important. Small business leaders need to use the advantages within their business to act and be agile. And that only comes about when you're actively listening and then feeding that data back into your system so that everyone in the company understands the importance of what the customer has to say. When you shared that when people at the PALS Sudden Service Burgers need to train because it's like getting out of alignment. And for people to think about this as recalibrating, I think I heard light bulbs going off for everyone listening to this podcast <laughs> because it's so important. And it's to look at it not as if people are broken or defective, but we need to be brought back into calibration in order to do our job better with less friction. And then to look for the third group of people with change who say, woe is change, so that you're actually able to focus on the three things that matter, the meaning, relationships, and security that come about whenever change initiatives take place. And also for focusing on self-directed teams within our own businesses. John, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you so much today for being on My Quest for the Best and helping us learn how to recognize and avoid nincompoopery. Before we leave, John, tell us, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Well, Bill, first of all, thanks for having me on. This has been tremendous fun. You can find uh, more about me, about the book at johnrbrandt.com. That's J-O-H-N-R-B-R-A-N-D-T.com. Or you can find out about uh, the MPI group where we did all uh, much of this research, I should say, at, at mpi-group.com. But this has been terrific. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And we'll link to your personal page and your company page and the book all in the show notes so people could go there and find out more information and make it really, really easy. John, thanks so much. It's been not only very illuminating, it's been a whole lot of fun. <laughs> I agree. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Bill. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. 
My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.